Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 25, verses 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you a stranger and welcomed you, or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, you that are accursed, depart from me into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not give me clothing, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? Then he will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteousness, the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Courtney Martin is a writer and a mother of young children. She recently confessed that sometimes all the incomplete projects around her house make her crazy. The abandoned board game, the half-finished drawings, the plate of breakfast with only a few bites taken out of it, which Martin finishes because she hates to waste food. I could relate to her frustration, and I suspect many of you can too. Remember Janet's story about the completion family? That hit home for a lot of us. But Martin's article took a turn I didn't see coming. In it, she confessed two realizations. One, that her desire for completion is ultimately about wanting control over her life. And two, that death is the ultimate reminder of our lack of control over completion or anything else. Death, whether sudden or expected, is a completion of sorts, and yet it's also not 
because all the things that make up a life, relationships, creative endeavors, accomplishments, big or small, these often continue to bear fruit even when someone's earthly life has ended. Martin concludes her essay with these words, I hereby pledge to lose my faith in completion. It's dawned on me that it's actually quite immature, a trick I learned to make myself feel like things were in control, that I was good, that things were going as planned. I'm old enough to know that none of that is true, that art is messy and disjointed, that life is unpredictable and uncontrollable, that the virtue is in the present moment, not in the promise of a tidy ending. So, she continues, I'll keep eating the leftover breakfast, my little sacrament to wasting nothing, but I will remind myself again and again that completion is not godly. Creation is. Don't get it twisted. Completion is not godly. Creation is. Creation, whether we're talking about the natural world or everyday creative acts like making art or building community, creation is rarely perfectly complete or ordered, but it is godly, for we are made in the image of an endlessly creative God Yet, because we so long for order and progress, structure and predictability, control, it's easy to forget this. Completion isn't godly. Creation is. And creation is the very thing Jesus keeps inviting us to do, to join him in the creation of the kingdom of God on earth. This scripture we heard today from Matthew 25 represents the second bookend of Jesus' teaching ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. The first is the Beatitudes, Jesus' first sermon, the one that turns on its head everything the people thought they knew about God and right behavior and who is in and who is out and who is up and who is down. The Sermon on the Mount begins Jesus' teaching ministry, and this parable of the sheep and the goats brings it to a kind of temporary completion. Temporary because with this story, Jesus' teaching is meant to continue in the lives and in the everyday actions of his followers, we who call ourselves his disciples. Our work the work of creating the kingdom of God on earth, is lifelong. Now, this story Jesus tells is not meant to be a literal description of a moment in time when God gathers everybody together and decides who's going to heaven and who is consigned to eternal damnation. It's a parable, and as such, it defies easy explanation, despite the fact that it seems straightforward enough at first. There are two kinds of people, Jesus says, let's call them sheep and goats. What makes them different is how they exhibit righteousness. Now, righteousness is a particular concern of Matthew's Jesus, but 
It's not about following the religious law to the letter. Righteousness for Jesus is having the capacity and wisdom to discern the spirit of the law, which is always on the side of mercy. Righteousness is what it looks like to live out the greatest commandment, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. In this final parable, Jesus unpacks in vivid imagery what this righteousness looks like in the lives of his disciples. It's all about our actions in the world, specifically our behavior toward people on the margins, those lacking basic necessities, those who are sick, those who are imprisoned. Righteousness is measured by our actions toward people in need, particularly those who are strangers to us and who have been labeled other or less than for whatever reason. How we treat the least of these, says Jesus, is a good measure of how well we're following God's law of mercy and love and how we are creating God's kingdom on earth. Now, I understand if your instinct upon hearing this is to dismiss this interpretation as works-based righteousness, but a closer reading of this parable reveals that's not what Jesus is saying because, and here's the parable's surprise, neither the sheep nor the goats had any idea what they were doing when they were doing it. Both ask in wonder, when did we do or not do these things to you? And then there is that gut punch at the end. Just as you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. So what does this parable mean for us? as we try to live each day with integrity and consistency in a way that our actions line up with our deepest held beliefs about mercy and justice in such a way that we are co-creators of the kingdom of God on earth. Well, first we have to realize that one of the ways the parable breaks down from a literal interpretation is that life is never this dualistic. None of us, not one could simply be classified as a sheep or a goat. Every one of us is both, sometimes responding to the needs of the person in front of us and sometimes utterly missing the opportunity. That can even happen in the very same day, sometimes in the same hour. In the life of discipleship, there is no completion, no perfection. There is only trying and learning and trying again. Which leads to the second lesson of this text, which is that trying turns out to be the point. This is Jesus' last teaching, the one meant to stick with us, to lodge deep in our hearts and minds and souls. Whatever we do or don't do to the least of these, the marginalized, the oppressed, the poor, the left out, the overlooked, it is as if we have done it to Jesus himself. This is what it means to follow Jesus, to call ourselves his disciples, and it isn't a one-time thing. It was never meant to be. It is a lifelong, creative endeavor. 
and we'll never get it perfect, which is okay. Completion isn't godly. Creation is. Richard Rohr writes that we will know we have truly accepted God's love for us when we can love others the way we have been loved by God unconditionally with unending mercy and grace. He calls this completing the circuit, like the simple batteries we made in grade school where touching the right leads together turned on a light bulb. Now, loving others the way God loves us, treating everyone we encounter like it's Jesus himself, this sounds like a monumental task. And I don't mean to diminish it or make it sound easy, but sometimes we hear it and decide it's just too big, it's too hard, and we're not even going to try. We think completion isn't possible, so we refrain from trying at all. While I was serving a church in the city of Cleveland, my church sponsored a showing of the movie The Hate You Give for 125 juniors and seniors at a nearby Cleveland Public High School. Like Richmond, the public school system in Cleveland serves kids who are primarily black and poor, victims of decades of discrimination and injustice which have been baked into public policy. After watching this movie, which is a powerful depiction of the violence and injustice that stems from racism, we return to the church for pizza and conversation. A few of the students were inspired by what they had seen, and they got up and they made passionate speeches, calling their peers to join them in action to break down prejudice. But others responded with deep cynicism. It doesn't matter what we do, they said. It doesn't matter what conversations we have. Nothing is ever going to change. Finally, one of the adults who had joined us got up to speak. I've been listening to you guys talk, and I want to tell you something, she said. I have two master's degrees and a Ph.D., and I got pulled over by the police not long ago when I was driving through the suburbs. The only thing I'd done wrong was that I'm black and I was wearing a hoodie. So I know from all kinds of personal experience how hard it is to be black in America and how easy it is to think there's nothing we can do to change things for the better. But, she continued, the only thing any of you can do is to figure out what you can do and then do it. What can you do today to make a difference in your life or in someone else's life? Focus on that, she said. Do that. If we all did that, we could change our country. We all want to make a difference. Why else would we be here? On a Sunday morning, listening to the words of a poor, itinerant Jewish teacher who lived over 2,000 years ago, this desire to follow Jesus, to do our best to answer his call, to join him in creating God's kingdom on earth, this is what brings us together. 
as we emerge from yet another polarizing election season, we need to remember the things we have in common and how powerful it can be when we work together. As a community, we already do this in so many ways. Prayers and food and cards and support to each other when there's an illness or a death or a difficult season. We do it for those beyond our walls. These past weeks, donations for the Afghan refugees at Fort Lee filled up the front entrance of the church. I mean, there was hardly room for the preschoolers to come in and out. Gently used items of clothing and luggage and also brand new suitcases and infant car seats. It was an incredible outpouring of love and support for the stranger in need. It was a co-creation of the kingdom of God. Will it solve the refugee and immigration crisis? No, but it will make a real difference in the lives of people who are struggling to begin anew. Like the man on the beach who picks up the washed-up starfish and throws them back into the ocean one at a time, his actions barely making a dent in the larger problem, they, make the, they mean the world to the individual starfish he saves. So we can choose to listen to the pundits who tell us we are hopelessly divided along clearly drawn lines of partisan politics as clearly as the king in this parable divides the sheep from the goats. Or we can listen to Jesus, who calls us all members of his family, who invites us all to be co-creators together of the kingdom of God, which we do one action, one person at a time. Today is All Saints Day. When we remember the lives of those we have lost, it is a day to remember all the things our loved ones taught us, the examples they set by what they did, by what they left undone. It's also a day when we get to catch a glimpse of the kingdom to come, a place where all God's children gather together where suffering and sorrow and pain are no more and where we discover in a whole new way that whatever separates us is utterly irrelevant when we sit at Christ's table. Gender, race, sexuality, nationality, politics, even religion. What matters is that we are all members of God's family. We are the communion of saints at God's table, in all our glorious difference and diversity, we are each incomplete, beautiful works in progress. And God invites us to join Jesus and one another in the messy, creative work of building God's beloved community where each person knows their worth. At Presbyterian funerals, we say this, in death, our baptism is made complete. What we mean is that in baptism, we become a new creation, participating in Jesus' death and resurrection. And in death, the promises of baptism are fulfilled when we are raised to new life with Christ. In death, which is the doorway to that new life, God's creation becomes complete.
There is no place this is better expressed, in my opinion, than in the final verse of the hymn, Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. And I'll end with that as we prepare to read the names of our saints, remembering that we are all saints, incomplete though we may be, joined together in this hard and holy work of discipleship. Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless, let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee, changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen.